little bit of a cold, so I'm keeping everybody this far away. I'm not shaking any hands. And I don't want anybody blaming me for getting you sick, because I'm big on that. When I get a cold, I need to know who I got it from, so I'll, I'll rehearse in my mind. And my wife's like, who cares who you got it from? You got it. I said, but I need someone to blame, okay? So if you're like me, you won't blame me, because I'm, I'm not going to stand at the door afterward. I'm trying to. I feel better, but I just don't want anybody to get it. All right, well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible, if you'll turn to the book of Genesis. Chapter 23, we're continuing to talk about what it means to live a life of faith, the same faith that our fathers, like Abraham, lived. And if you're visiting with us, our elders, or ushers rather, have extra Bibles. So just raise your hand if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one. I had a really neat experience. I preached in a church in South Jersey that I helped to um, plant years ago, and a gentleman came in who had Parkinson's, always shaking from what his loved ones told me, and they invited him to come. This was just two weeks ago, and um, as soon as he sat down, they said, he went, look, and his hands were completely still, and they said he never stopped shaking. He was completely still, and I didn't know anything about this until after the service, but at the end of the service, when I gave an invitation to trust Christ as Savior, he raised his hand, which again, I didn't know anything about that, but I received a call last night that he would like to talk to me and that I had asked if I could follow up with him, and so pray for him, but it's really exciting to see how the power of the Lord meets with us as we gather together, and so if you're visiting with us, we hope that you'll feel welcome and that you'll see that this book is really not some old-fashioned book written by men, but it's a book that's very relevant and God uses it to change our lives. So, Let's pray together, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for answering our prayers over and over again. You're so good to us. Thank you that we can gather today in the name of Jesus, give thanks to you for his sacrifice, celebrate this wonderful country we live in, pray for our loved ones, those who aren't well, and that we can hear a word from the Lord. Father, we saw last week how willing Abraham was to pass the test. This morning, Lord, as we see how faith affects every area of our lives, may we continue to grow together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at Abraham's dealing with the loss of his wife and choosing a spouse for his son. But the framework in which I want you to think about this is that a Christian lives by faith. So when we talk about faith, this is not some inactive head thing. It's it's an ongoing, pulsating, living activity that we continue to do. But it does have a starting point, okay? There has to be a point in your life in which you're awakened and you choose to believe in the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, no one comes to God but through me, As Don mentioned in communion, you don't have a relationship with God by being good. It's not by works. The Bible says, by God's grace, we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. It's not as a result of works. But once once you become a Christian and, and your faith is awakened, you begin to live a life of faith, and it affects your marriage. It affects your values. It affects your parenting. 
it affects the way that you handle suffering. It totally changes your whole worldview. And there's always this temptation to turn away from faith. And this is one of the things that Jesus taught is that if you're going to follow him by faith, it's a lifetime. It's not when things are going good or when God's really blessing you. It's an ongoing experience of saying, okay, I'm going to trust you, Jesus. I'm going to trust you when things are going well, and I'm going to trust you when they're not going well. But the Bible gives us great encouragement during those times when we're struggling. And so let's look in Genesis chapter 23, or actually we're going to start in 22, beginning in verse 20. Abraham just passed this enormous test. And in verse 20, the author adds some background that's going to set us up for chapter 24. Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham saying, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. And then he goes on to list these eight sons, Uz, Buz, Kemuel, Kesed, Hazu, Pildash, Jidlaf, Bethuel. And then as a side note, he says, oh, and by the way, Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. So now remember, if you, if you go back, you think about Abraham's life. He had left Ur in Mesopotamia years before that, some 60 years before this, he left Ur of the Chaldeans and he comes into this land that he doesn't know anybody, he doesn't know anything about it, and God says, I'm going to give you this land. And news, unlike today, didn't travel as quickly, and he says, hey, one of your relatives showed up, remember your brother? He's got a bunch of sons, and he's, he's, he's got a bunch of grandkids and so forth, and Abraham's like, ah, that's, that's, that's interesting, but, but God's preparing us. Who is this Rebecca? Well, we're going to see her in a little bit. Chapter 23. Now, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that's Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Let's just stop and think about Sarah for a minute. But here was this young girl that Abraham married. He brings her from this established metropolis or, or, or opulent city of Ur. We know from geograph or um, archaeological records, Ur was a big city. He takes her away from her family, and they spend the rest of their lives living in tents. Okay? You know how your husband says after that next move and that next move and that next move, one of these days, honey, we're going to settle down, and I'm going to get you that nice place that we've talked about on the hill. She spent her entire life, Sarah, traveling around, living in tents as a woman of faith. She didn't have an easy life. Abraham wasn't always um, the, the pristine husband, right? I mean, a couple times he sort of threw her under the bus by going, oh, just say you're my sister because he was afraid. And yet Sarah's held out in, in Scripture as a wonderful woman of faith. And so here she is. Think about her age now. She's... 127, she had Isaac at like age 90. So now she's raised her only son Isaac. He's 37 years old and she dies. But the emphasis in this chapter is not so much on their marriage or on their grief, but there's such a big deal in this chapter about Abraham securing some land to bury her. And, and, and Moses goes out of his way to make a big deal about that. So let's read. Uh, 
Verse 3, then Abram rose from before his dead, and he spoke to the sons of Heth. Now, these were one of the many people groups, some refer to as Hittites, Canaanites, that were living in the land. Verse 4, Abram says, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered him, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. Note two things. Number one, in this culture and at that time, when someone died, you went back to your homeland and buried them. You did not bury people in a foreign land. So this was very unusual that Abraham would not take Sarah back to bury her. That would have been the norm. Secondly, it's really striking that Abram's been in the land for 60 years and he doesn't own one piece of real estate. Even though God said to him, this whole land is all going to be, it's yours. I'm giving it to you, right? And yet, for the last 60 years, he's lived in tents and he keeps being blessed. So, so he's, he's wealthy and he's respected, but he's living kind of between two worlds. So now all of a sudden when... His wife dies, he begins to see this burning desire that this is the promised land, I want to bury her here, I need to have a little piece of land, a little down payment, so to speak, of this promise that God has given to me. So, he begins to inquire among the, the, the locals, hey, how about selling me some land? Verse 5. The sons of Heth answered him and said to him, Hear us, my Lord, you're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us would refuse you his grave for burying your dead. Now, that's, that's a really interesting thing. They called him, literally, it's a prince of Elohim, a prince of God. So here's Abraham, a man of faith in the living God, right? Because if you've read the Bible at all, you realize it's not like, Oh, just whatever religion you want, they're all the same, it doesn't matter. There's only one true God. According to the Bible, it's the living God that you come to through the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, these pagans who had all their gods around him, they looked at this guy and they go, dude, you're a prince of God. And it shows us as, as a little bit of a, a, a cultural thing to say, you know what, this is what God wants for us as believers. He wants us over time to begin to have a reputation among unbelievers that's a good reputation. He'd lived there long enough that they had a great respect for him. In fact, in the New Testament when it says, if any man's going to be an elder, as God, and I would encourage you men to aspire to that. That's a good thing to be an elder. It says he must have a good reputation with those who are unbelievers. So as a side note, all of Abram's dealings with these people he had a good reputation. And I wonder, how do your neighbors view you? You're like, well, they're a little mad because I shot their dog last week, you know, because he kept doing his mess on my yard. Or how do the people you work with view you? How do your relatives who aren't believers view you? It is important to pray that God will help us to be kind and Christ-like and responsible and people who will put out a testimony that's attractive for the gospel. So Abram rises before the people of the land and he says, 
If it's your wish for me to bury the dead out of my sight, then hear me and approach Ephron the, Zoh, the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. Now, that word Machpelah has to do with a, a twin cave. And so apparently this, this cave, different commentary said, maybe it was one on top of the other, two caves, or as you went inside, it split into two. But Abraham had been living in this land for a long time, just wasn't his. But he'd seen that cave many times, and he's like, I think that would be a suitable place to bury my wife. And you're like, what's the big deal, Abram? Why do you need to bury her here in the land? So he says, approach Ephraim, and we don't know whether he knew who Ephraim was, and the fact that Ephraim's called a Hittite seems to indicate that maybe he wasn't even a local, and we're not even sure how he got this land. But Abraham wants that cave, and so he asks would you see if Ephraim will sell it? Verse 10, now Ephraim was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth. Even all who went in at the gate of his city, they said, no, my Lord, hear me. I'll give you this field. I'll give you the cave that's in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the people. And he said, if you'll just listen to me, I'll give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. He stopped and he go, hey, the guy offered to give it to you. You know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Just take it for free. We're not sure. I don't know why Abram felt so strongly, why he wanted to buy it. But I have a sense that years later, it would have been awful easy for Abram's descendants to say, hey, that... That's my cave. What? Yeah, your, your granddad gave it to you. Well, he, he gave it to you. Remember how they say it, where there's a will, there's a way, and the funeral director says, no, where there's a will, there's relatives fighting over it. Abram wanted to make sure that this piece of land was secured legally and that it would be totally his possession because that's the emphasis of this chapter, that this little piece of land would be deeded over, that he had one little tiny plot in the promised land that he says, this is mine. Now, this was a great act of faith because God had told him one day it would all be his. So, Ephraim answered, said to him, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between me and you? So bury your dead. Now, here's where <laughs> study Bibles and commentaries go back and forth on this. You're like, what the heck's 400 shekels of silver? They didn't have coins yet at this time. But numerous commentaries said this, compared to what David paid when he bought the field from Aruna, the Jebusite, that this was way overpriced, that, that, that he was really fleeced by Ephron. Ephron's, you know, using false, you know, humility. Oh, shoot, it ain't worth much, you know, just 400 shekels of silver, when in fact, maybe it probably wasn't worth near that much. Oh, I don't know, it's hard to say. But even so, Abram's like, fine. Verse 16, he weighed out for Ephraim the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephraim's field which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field within all the confines of its border were deeded over to Abraham. Now notice, for a possession. Now he had a little possession. He had a little piece of property. He had a little inheritance in the land. And before all who went in at the gate of the city, and after this, Abram buried Sarah's wife in the cave of the field at Machpelah. 
facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abram for a burial site by the sons of Heth. And you're like, really? A whole chapter just talking about how he got a piece of land to bury his loved ones? There's got to be something to that. Well, I want you to jump over with me all the way to chapter 49. In chapter 49, many years later, after Isaac had given birth to Jacob, Jacob had given birth to 12 sons. And at the end of Jacob's life, when he's about to die, this little cave. Now remember, they're down in Egypt by now. This, they've long left the promised land. They're down in Egypt. And yet, as Jacob's dying, he calls together his 12 sons. He blesses them. And then in verse 29, then he charged them and he said to them, I'm, a be, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Fine, let's, yeah, I get it. Now, gathered to my people, that's interesting because this is a phrase that's beginning to develop among the Old Testament saints. What happens after you die? Gathered to my people. And so what we're beginning to see is that they had a faith that there was a life after this. Now, I don't think they understood what we understood about the resurrection of Christ, but we did, I, I do believe that they understood that, that when you die, number one, that if you were a believer, you would be gathered to a place of comfort. You would be gathered together with your other loved ones who are believers. Now, we know that for sure. We know today, if you die, if you're a Christian, you're absent from the body and present with the Lord. So as he thought about being gathered with his people, I think what God wants us to see here is that these people had a genuine sense that there was a future world, that they had nailed down in their mind that it's not just what happens in this life, but there's a coming life. And to them, they wanted to be in that promised land because they wanted to be resurrected in the promised land. So notice what Jacob says. He says, I'm about to be gathered my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that's in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephraim the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham, right? There they buried his wife, Sarah. There they buried Isaac. There they buried his wife, Rebekah. Jacob says, there I buried Leah. Now he's saying, and I want you to bury me there. And then at the end of chapter 50, when Joseph's dying, he goes, take my bones and take me up there and bury me in the land as well. So everybody has this desire to be buried in this promised land. And we'll come back to that. But go back to chapter 24 now. Because Rebecca was introduced briefly. Oh, by the way, you have an, a niece, Rebecca. Your brother, actually a grandniece, Rebecca. Abram's getting old. He's lost his wife. He lived many years after that. But there was one thing that he still hadn't done. And that is, he wanted to pass on his Christian faith in such a way that he knew that it was significant who his child married. And any of us who are parents, we think about that all the time, right? Don't you think about that all the time? 
who my kid's going to marry. And I want to encourage you, I don't care if your baby's two days old, it's not too soon to be praying for their future spouse. And there's so many implications to that. Remember when you first heard about arranged marriages when you were young and how stupid, you, that was ridiculous. How could your parents pick out somebody? But then as you get older, you start going, you know, there's some merit to that, you know? And many cultures still do that. My wife and I just spoke at a Pakistani church and I spoke on marriage. And many of these young girls here in America, their parents had chosen who they married. And my wife was like, how do you feel about that? And it was interesting because they said, you know, we trust our parents. We know that they wouldn't just pick out somebody for us that they didn't think was good. But Abraham shows us what a life of faith looks like as you consider securing, quote, securing a spouse for your child. Remember my daughter once was telling me about this guy and she said, I think he likes me. Someone told me he wants to date me. And I said, you just tell him you're not on the market. <laughs> she says, Dad. So verse 21 or 24, verse 1. Now Abram was old, advanced in age, and, and let this would sink in. And the Lord blessed Abram in every way. I really like that verse. In fact, go over to chapter, well, actually, for the sake of time, I'll just read it to you. In chapter 25, verse 8, it says, when he died, Abram breathed his last in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. So, so think about this. God blessed Abram in every way, and when he died, he was an old man satisfied with life. I've told my wife this many times. I have a, a hero. It was a little old man that used to preach down at Baraka Church in Philly. He died at the age of 100 preaching. He, he, he dropped dead preaching at the age of 100. I said, that's how I want to go. But bigger than that, except that it probably traumatized all of his, his, <laughs> his flock are in therapy. Like, I watched my pastor die of a heart attack. You know, I still have nightmares about that. So I'll try to quietly go back there when I, <laughs> before I die. But, but I want you to think about this. A life of faith. Abraham didn't have an easy life, but because he trusted and he obeyed God, the Lord blessed him in every way. And at the end of his life, he looks back and he was satisfied in a ripe old age. And that's no guarantee, because later on the author's gonna tell us about Jacob, who didn't trust God, who didn't walk by faith, who didn't obey God. When Jacob was an old man, Pharaoh said, tell me about yourself, and he says, few and miserable have been the years of my life. And so you stop and you think to yourself, wait a minute, how do I wanna end my life? Do I wanna die in a ripe old age, blessed in every way, satisfied, God is so good? Or do I want to die a cranky old person who didn't trust God and say, my life has been miserable? And a lot of it has to do with whether we're, we're living a life of faith, a life of trust, a life of depending on God and seeking his face. So Abram's concerned to find a spouse for his son. Verse 2, Abram says to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh. This was an important guy. This was like his right-hand man. I want you to stop and think about this. Abram probably had this guy as a servant for many, many years. 
and had a, a father, fatherly relationship with this guy. And, and, and I'm going to suggest that Abraham had brought this guy to the Lord, that Abraham's faith living around this guy had had such an influence that this, this young man, who's probably now an older man, came to the Lord. So he calls his, his trusted servant. And then he does something really weird in our culture. He says, place your hand under my thigh. Now, in our culture, that might cause a fight. But in, in that culture, um, the, the loins area of a man was, was how you made a pledge. You put your hand under his thigh, around his loins, and probably, you know, there's enough we'll leave to the imaginations, but something along the lines of cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. So, so it was a cultural thing, but it wasn't just some weird thing, place your hand under my thigh. And he says, and I want you to do this. I want you to swear by the Lord God of heaven and the God of earth that you shall not take a son from the daughters of the Canaanites and who, among whom I live. Do not pick a Canaanite for my wife. And I can tell you this, the beaches of time are riddled with people who have married Canaanites, people who are believers who have ended up marrying unbelievers. And I beg you young people that are not yet married, if you're a Christian, don't marry an unbeliever. How can it be so wrong, Debbie Boone sang, when it feels so right? Because what fellowship has light with darkness? What does Christ have with Belial? Don't be unequally yoked. And so this is so important for us to recognize that God wants our children to marry believers. So he says, here's what I want you to do. Go to my country, to my relatives, and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant says to him, all right, suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. So he says, I'm going to traipse myself all the way back to Mesopotamia. I'm going to try to find somebody from your relatives. What if she won't come? He says, do you want me to bring Isaac back there? Now watch this. Beware lest you take my son back there. Whatever you do, don't take my son back to the old world. Now again, there's sort of this principle in Scripture that when you become a Christian, you leave the old world. You leave the old life. You begin to follow Christ, but there's always going to be that temptation to want to go back to your old ways. And if in any way you're being drawn back to your old habits, doing things that you know are not for Christ, not the things that God wants you to do, then just have this, this great resolve, beware lest you take my son back there. Beware lest we fall away from the living God and go back to the ways of this world. Verse seven, the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me saying, to your seed I will give this land, he'll send his angel before you and you'll take a wife for my son from there. You know what, here's a man of God who's walked with God so long that he's like, look, Many, many years ago, God found me. I wasn't seeking him. He called me to himself out of his grace. And as I've trusted him, as I've walked toward him and obeyed him, time and again, he has been faithful to me. And so here's Abraham going, you know what? I trust that God is going to find somebody for my son that's godly. And those of you who are struggling, because I, listen, I know how hard it is to trust God when things aren't working. 
You're going, God. And one of the things that I think Abraham does is he looks back, he goes, I look back on all that God has done for me. We used to sing an old chorus that went like this. He didn't bring us this far to leave us. He didn't teach us to swim just to let us drown. He didn't build a home in us to walk away. And he didn't pick us up to let us down. So if you're struggling this morning, look back and see those places in your life where God has been good and faithful to you. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to trust him no matter how things are going right now. This is a God who will be with you all the days of your life. And you claim that. The Lord Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you're a Christian, he began a good work in you. And Philippians 1.6 says, he will perform it until the day of Christ. So Abraham shows us what a life of faith. You're saying, oh God, praying for you to touch my kids in the same way you've touched my life. He says, but even if that woman doesn't follow, then you'll be free from my oath. Just don't take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of his master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took 10 camels from the, cities of his ma- from, the, of, from the camels of his master, and he set out with a variety of good things of his master in his hand, and he rose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Now, listen, this is not going next door. This is a long, arduous journey, right? A long, long way. Get out your Bible map and see how far. And you couldn't go a direct route. You had to go around because it was all desert. So they had to go up through the Fertile Crescent. This guy's being sent on a journey that would take months, right? And, And he finally gets there. And this is what's cool. The faith of this servant. When he finally arrives in Mesopotamia, in verse 11, it says, he comes to the city of Nahor, And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar that I may drink. If she answers, drink and I'll water your camels also, may she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Are we supposed to do that? Is that how we're supposed to, to make decisions? Well, let, let's hold that intention, but think about what he said here. It's one thing to say, hey, can you give me a drink? He says, but God, if this woman offers to give water to my camels, now, he's got 10 camels, right? And I don't know how many gallons camels drink, but they did not take a sip, right? So we're not talking about, she goes, Here's a little something for you. you. You want some too, Bactrian? How about you, Dromedary? Do you know how long it would take to keep going down with that little pitcher and bringing up water to water 10 camels? And you're going, that's what I always tell my boy. Don't marry a pretty girl. Marry one with a strong back. And I'm going, no, I don't think it was that. I think this man was simply saying, God, my master taught me to trust you. And now I'm learning how to trust you. God, I'm looking for a sign from you. And this is so cool. Just the faithfulness of God. Verse 15. It came about before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, 
she came out with a jar on her shoulder, and she was beautiful, a virgin. No man had relations with her, and she went down to the spring, and she filled her jar and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her, and he said, please, let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw. And she drew for all of his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Then it came about when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a gold ring and two bracelets and he said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, is there room for us to lodge in the house? And she said, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor, which is exactly what Abraham said, go find one of my relatives. And you go, wow, what a coincidence. There's no way this was a coincidence. This is God. Now, we stop and we go, is this how we're supposed to find a spouse? I often say this to, as I teach this to our college students. This does not mean that you go into the cafeteria, have an empty cup on your tray, Drop that empty cup, and as it bounces off the ceramic tile, say, God, whoever picks it up, I know that she will be the one you want me to marry. First of all, you would probably make sure that you dropped it around the person that you had already selected. Secondly, if someone else reached for it, it would be too tempting not to say, don't touch that. So I don't think God here is telling us, this is the Ouija board way to ask for signs. I think we see the bigger picture here, and that is that God is faithful, and that God wants us to pray. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to seek his face. And then we read this. The man bowed low, and he worshiped the Lord. And he blessed the Lord, the God of his master Abraham, who had not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward his master. And he said, as for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. We're going to stop reading at this point because I want us to draw out some applications about the life of faith. And the first one I want to draw out, I want to take a, take a moment and talk about Sarah. What can I learn about a faith life from Sarah? Sarah died and Abram mourned over her. I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3 for a moment. Some of you are in a difficult marriage because you and your spouse don't share the same faith. Or maybe you're dating someone who's a believer or isn't a believer and you are. But I, wanna, I want us to look at this passage in 1 Peter 3 because those of us who are married need to understand that a life of faith affects your marriage. It affects the way that you live with your spouse. And there's some advice here for both husbands and wives, but it's framed around Sarah. And Sarah has been brought up for us as an example. And so as we buried Sarah in Genesis 23, 
I want us to just take a moment, and I just want to remind those of you that are married a couple general things. Number one, Christian marriages. God never said marriage is easy. The Bible never says that you're supposed to marry the one you love. What the Bible teaches is that God will give you the grace to learn how to love the one you marry. And no matter how difficult your marriage is, God will never ask us to do anything that he won't enable us to do. But one of the things that God asks wives to do is to be submissive to their husbands. And there have been some really knucklehead, foolish, angry, proud men who have abused that. And God doesn't say this because he says, men are smart, women are dumb, and that's the way it is. It has nothing to do with that. Jesus submitted to his father, even though they were equal. But this passage tells us that wives, you can have an influence on your husband through your lifestyle and through your gentle spirit. When you treat your husband with respect, when you treat him with gentleness, it can influence him in a way that no words can do. And our culture has this idea that respect is something that needs to be earned. Why should I treat him with respect? He hasn't earned my respect. And that's just not what the Bible teaches. Respect is not something that's earned. Neither is love something that's earned. I don't tell husbands, you should love your wife as soon as she earns it. You treat her with love because that's what God has called us to do. But let's look at Sarah in the midst of this. Peter says, in the same way you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And don't let your adornment be external only, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Now I understand so many times frustrated wives are saying, he doesn't listen. The only way I can get his attention is if I raise my voice. It's not working if I'm not going to be a doormat. And I understand that. God's not asking you to be a doormat. But the way that you interact with your husband and the way that you gently and in a Christ-like way show him what a godly woman looks like, it can have a tremendous influence. And God will deal with him. In fact, someone once said, submission is just ducking so God can hit your husband. So, so look at what it says, though. It brings in Sarah here. It says, for this way in former times, holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. I'm sure there were times when Sarah wanted to say, are you crazy, Abraham? That's the stupidest thing I ever heard of. I'm not gonna say I'm your sister, even though technically we're kind of related, yet you're a moron, and I'm tired of living in these tents. You promised me. No, she gently and in a godly way, this was a good woman. Sarah lived a hard life, but she showed us what it looks like to live a life of faith. And Peter says, listen, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what's right without being frightened by any fear. And I want to encourage you wives to reflect on this godly Sarah and pray that Christ will help you to be like her. I don't have an agenda here, but guys, lest, lest you elbow your wife, look at verse 7. You husbands likewise... And especially you husbands that are being disobedient to God, 
especially you men who are taking advantage and are selfish and rude to your wife. That's no small thing to God. He says, you husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. He said, I don't understand women. Hello? God says, learn to understand women. They're not the same as you. They don't think like you do. And you and I, men, need to learn to listen, to be gentle, to be respectful, and to be like Christ in how we treat our wives. Even some men, they're like, oh, I don't have time for the old lady, I'm serving Jesus. That's nonsense. Jesus never asked us to lay down our lives for the church. He already did that. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. And I want to challenge you men to be a good husband, to be a godly husband, to be a humble husband, to be a, a gentle husband, to be a caring husband and a student of your wife. Since she's a woman, grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, we learn about faith, that faith is going to affect your marriage. It's going to affect your parenting. It's going to affect your prayers for your kids. But lastly, I want you to turn to Hebrews 11 as we close. Because faith affects our values. A life of faith affects the way I view my life. I want us to rehearse as we're finishing up the life of Abraham. What does it mean to live a life of faith? Because he didn't have it easy, and we don't either as Christians at times. It's not easy to trust God when things aren't working out, when we make mistakes, when, when, when we have illness, when we lose our job, when we're misunderstood, when, when someone hurts us, when our spouse runs off on us, when someone we love gets cancer. Life isn't easy. When one of our kids wanders from Christ, when we go through tragedy, depression, and, and, and all of these struggles, it's not easy. But what does a life of faith look like? A life of faith just patiently trusts God, obeys God, continues to seek God, and realizes, and this is the thing I want to close with, that a life of faith is not a life that's grounded in this life. It's a life that's setting our affection on Christ and the life to come. God never said, you're going to have your good life now. That's the next life. The life now, we're strangers. This world's not our home. God doesn't owe us a big home and bunch of kids and tons of vacations. He wants us to walk with him, resist Satan. Don't fall into sin. Don't cut corners and be disobedient. Trust him and he'll take care of you. Let's look in verse 9, or verse 8. By faith, Abram, when he was called, he obeyed God by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. How would you like it if God said to you, the rest of your life, I really respect our, our men who have gone over to the, the Middle East and 
and fought in the Persian Gulf or in Afghanistan. And some of these guys have lived in tents and they come back after a few years and, and they describe it and they go, man, I have a world of respect for you. Imagine if God said to you, for the next 120 years, you're going to wander around and live in a tent in the desert. Why didn't they just say, this is stupid. We can go back to the comforts of earth. Here's why. It says, verse 10, for they were looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Sarah, she received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered God faithful who had promised and she bore of one man as good as dead as many descendants as the stars of heaven. Now look at verse 13. All these died in faith, Abraham, Sarah. They died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Are you there? Do you go, you know what? This world's not my home. If I lose my house, then I'll lose my house. Because you know what? It's just a house and it's gonna go. It's just a car. It's just a job. But there's something that's coming that's important to me. Verse 14, those who say such things, making clear that they seek a country of their own. If they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, here it is. For he has prepared a city for them. Do you believe that? There's a city up there. It's called the New Jerusalem. The city of the living God. And, and you and I can't see it. But God holds it out to you by way of promise. And he says, what do you want? You want this world? Or you want the city? You can't have both. But if you read the book of Revelation, it says one day, this New Jerusalem this great city of God, this heavenly city will descend from heaven and the city of God will come to earth. And all of those throughout the, the annals of history who have followed Christ by faith will inherit that great city where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more sorrow. The former things are all passed away. But here we are in that world of in-between where God's calling us to leave this world and to live by faith and to live for that heavenly city. And so as we close this morning, I want to encourage you to do some soul searching and to ask yourself, how deep are my tent pegs in this world? What am I really living for? Am I living for the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I pray and seek the Lord? Have I made it my ambition to raise godly children? I can't, I can't do anything sometimes but fall on my face and pray. But like Abraham, are you willing to live this life of faith that says, I believe that Jesus is coming again. He could come back today. And some of you, if he came back today, you're not in. The Bible says, unless a man be born again, he won't inherit the kingdom of God. And God's calling you this morning to leave this world and to say, I'm ready to follow Jesus. And for those of you that are following him, we get beat up, beat down. Satan makes us feel mad, sad, had. But you know what? The life of faith says, I'm not giving up. 
My God is faithful. My Lord Jesus brought me this far. My God will answer prayer. My God will provide everything that I need to finish this life. And so these stories are encouraging, and I hope that God will encourage your heart that it's worth it to stay true to Jesus. And wherever you are in your journey, I encourage you to walk close with him by faith. Become a man of prayer, a woman of prayer, a mother of prayer, a husband, a child of faith. And let's pray to God that before Christ comes back, that we can leave a legacy like Abraham. And I trust that we'll die in a ripe old age, satisfied with life, and stepping across the stars into the city of God. Amen? Let's pray together. While our heads are bowed, some of you have been considering the Christian faith for some time. Some of you, this is the first time you've heard this message. But God is always saying, come. And right now, with no one looking around, if you have never chosen to follow Christ by faith, to leave this world, I want to invite you to do that right there in your seat, to say to the Lord Jesus, Lord, I know that I failed you by sinning. I could never earn my salvation. But today, I want to accept the gift of your salvation. I believe your promise that you died and rose again. I believe that there is a coming city, and I want to live for that city, not for this world. If that's your desire today, and you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you to just look up at me and raise your hand. If God is speaking to you and you say, I want to follow Jesus, I want to believe in him as my Lord and Savior. Is there anyone this morning, God's speaking to you? Just raise your hand so I can pray for you. Yes. Anyone else? I'm not going to embarrass you. Father, now I want to pray for the children of God. Lord, you know how hard it is to live by faith. Thank you for the encouragement of Abram, Sarah, his servant, and how you found a wife for Isaac. Lord, meet our needs and encourage us today as we try to live by faith in a very difficult time in our country. We pray for our leaders that they will turn back to the Lord. We pray for our loved ones, our spouses, our children, our siblings. Lord, that each one of them will follow Christ. Thank you, Lord, that some of us will die before we receive the fullness of your promise. But one day, all who believe in Christ will be resurrected for eternity in the city of the living God. Send us out with that great comfort. Pray for those who have lost their loved ones, Lord, and they're still grieving. For those that are sick and afraid of dying, may you give them great hope in the resurrection. Thank you for Abram's faith, and may we hold to that same faith of our fathers. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful 4th of July weekend with your family. I do. Thank you. I just don't want you to get what I had.